Fabulous. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. I'm Mark. I'm from Southampton, England, and we had um, a really good morning yesterday. I, the, the moment I stepped off the plane, I, having been to Bangor a little bit in the past, I've forgotten how friendly you are. <laughs> and I had to adjust my being English <laughs> to being nice. <laughs> so it's been just so refreshing being here with you. And you are a warm and friendly people. And it was just such a great atmosphere yesterday morning. People were really hungry. And I teach prophecy in a non-spooky, very biblical, easy-to-use, comfortable style. Um, and I think they responded to that really, really well. Um, I'm married to Julie. We've been married 41 years this year on the 1st of April. Why, why the 1st of April? Well, my dad made the mistake of saying, pick a Sunday when everybody's free. Um, and it was only after we picked the 1st of April, he went, I didn't mean the 1st of April. So that caused problems with that. I have four adult 30-year-old kids who are married. And I'm busy trying to cope again with six young grandchildren from one to six years old. Uh, and Julie and I, although mainly Julie, child minds our daughter, granddaughter Evie, who's my son's daughter, on Thursdays and Fridays. So I'm learning how at the end of one day with a four-year-old, I am completely shattered. Completely shattered. She just does not stop talking. She talks at me for 10 hours at uh, starting at 7 in the morning. Um, I'm a bit of a confused character, okay? Um, oh, I do, ex do apologise for the rather garish top, but my oldest daughter, Kate, bought it for me, and if I don't wear them, she knows I don't like them, so I, I sort of, I, I wear them. I can show her a picture, I've worn it, so I really did appreciate it. Um, I'm an extrovert, so I'm going to be a bit lively. I hope you can cope with that. I'm prophetic. Well, you sort of know that. And I'm a chartered accountant. So I'm a very confused person, and I've needed a lot of counseling down the years to stay whole. But I think that's, I consider myself God's sense of humor. A um, couple of things before I dive in and do uh, an opening prayer. We did the, um, you, you did hear the word chocolate egg in everything that was said, didn't you? That was the bit I picked up. There's chocolate eggs around. Um, we did a similar sort of thing last Sunday where we gave out daffodils on Mother's Day and it was just so well received. So I'm sure your chocolate eggs at Easter is going to work really well. So if you're a bit sort of, oh, I don't know about this, I'm not sure. I found it really easy giving out daffodils to ladies on Mother's Day and actually some of them were quite tearful because obviously being a mother had personal circumstances. So it was very, very well received. So I think chocolate eggs are going to count better than flowers. So I think, you're, I personally think you're on a winner. Give it a go. Do give it a go. It sounds like we at Winchester Vineyard. Oh, I didn't. I should have started off saying, big welcome from Winchester Vineyard to our tribe friends in Dungannon. I should have started with that, shouldn't I? Evans. Um, I left my job in 2006. Prophecy was my hobby. Prophecy was my hobby, and I left my job in 2006 to teach anybody who wants to learn about prophecy um, and just give my time to it. So that's what I do. This is what I do all the time. This is my job. I am not going to teach you about prophecy this morning. Ah, or is that a relief? I go, thank goodness for that, dear heavens. Um, but I think there are parts of our lives in Jesus 
um, that are a foundation for making prophecy easy. So I want to teach you this morning about how to see the bigger picture, and I'm going to explain that a bit more, but let's just start with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that the first thing we sang this morning was to come as we are. And we thank you that the gospel is that you accept us, you love us, and you give us belonging, regardless of what we've done or who we are in, in Christ. Thank you for that truth that we can all feel safe and secure here. And I pray you just help each one of us in, in learning about seeing the bigger picture this morning to be more like you and to do more of the things that you did, I pray. Amen. Amen. So, let's go on a journey with the first slide. Do I have a slide? I have a slide. There we go. Um, if you'd like copies of these slides, um, they are available. You simply have to email me. I will attach the notes and send them back to you. Um, and my email address is schoolforprophecy, one word, schoolforprophecy at gmail.com. Um, I want to talk to you about something this morning that I think will really help your Christian life. Um, unfortunately, it does have the side effect that's going to make you a little bit prophetic, but only a little bit, okay? So that's, that's normal. I'm not going to turn you into a weird person like me. You will still be totally normal and everything like that. One of the features about Jesus was that people found what he said really hard to understand. He started talking about things that didn't seem to relate to anything that was going on in a particular situation or what they were doing. If you look at the story in Luke 8, 18, 18 to 23, and I'm not going to read these passages, but the Bible verses are there for you to look at. Uh, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says to him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? A very simple question. And there's sort of a possible question mark that he knew the answer to that question, so he was feeling safe and would look good with his friends. Here we have somebody, the disciples, in my mind, if you just get into the disciples' heads, they're thinking, he's got money. This guy's got money. He's a rich young ruler. He's going to mean that we actually get a re decent meal wherever we travel. Um, he's young. He could well be the next disciple. Perhaps he's our 13th disciple. He looks like a reasonable guy. And he's a ruler. So he has political influence where we go. We're getting a lot of rough treatment in different places. Perhaps he's the sort of person. So there's this sort of buzz going on in the disciples in my mind. And then out of Jesus' mouth pops this statement, go and sell everything you have and then come and follow me. And everybody knows that Jesus is saying something important and hasn't got a clue what on earth he's talking about. And the reason for this, which I want to unwrap in lots of Bible stories and Bible verses for you, is Jesus was able to see things that his disciples couldn't see. And it's learning that since God has come to live in us in his spirit, we can not only see the world around us with our physical eyes, what I call my eyes in my head, but we can also see into the spiritual realm. Now, the disciples were completely confused by what Jesus said and actually said to him, you know, does that mean anybody can be saved? They were very challenged. What happened here? Well, what happened was Jesus saw something his disciples couldn't see. And I want to train you to see things like Jesus did. 
the, the rich young ruler says to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What Jesus saw in the spirit, what Jesus saw with his spiritual eyes, was that the rich young ruler had an idol of wealth. His God was money. So the simple answer to his question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, is take the God of money out of your life and come and follow me. So strangely enough, while everybody didn't understand what Jesus was saying, he was actually just answering the question. And actually it was a loving answer because by saying come and follow Jesus, he was saying to him, don't just sell what you have and go back into your old lifestyle because you'll probably go back to your old ways. The way to break a habit of a lifetime is come and be with me and begin to get my values and my lifestyle in you. So here we have a situation where Jesus can see what the disciples can't see and we can understand what is going on. And I call that seeing the bigger picture. There's more going on here than my physical eyes can see. And it's learning that on occasions, not all the time, that's what we can do. Next slide, please. I found a really important verse in John 5, 17 to 19, when Jesus said to them this, My father is always at work to this very day, and so too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing for himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And I'm going, whoa, this is big. This is big. If Jesus, my Lord Jesus who I am a disciple of. We tend to say apprentice these days because disciple doesn't carry the same meaning as it, as it did in Jesus' time. And I think, I, you know, having, having been in business for 40 years, understand what an apprenticeship is, and I get the drift of that much, much better. But Jesus comes up with this statement, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do what I... And so I'm thinking, well, this is key in my life. Now... This was really good news and really bad news for me. It was really good news because I've got a principle of why Jesus did what he did. So I can copy what he's doing. He's only doing what he sees the Father doing. It was really bad news for me because I couldn't see what the Father was doing. So this is getting me nowhere fast. Uh, and it caused a period of my life when I really struggled because I'm thinking, I want to do what... I see the Father doing, but if I can't see what he's doing, this is really not helping at all. In fact, it's making me feel worse. And Father, after a couple of years, led me to a verse which answered all my questions in Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. Now, this is a kicker verse. This, for me, is probably one of the best three-point sermons that you can get. But it actually, it's the introduction to that three-point sermon I want to jump on. And it says as follows, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, one, the hope to which he's called you, two, the riches of his glorious inheritance, three, his incomparably great power for us 
who believe, which is what we sang about in our last song about calling on God to move in his power in miracles. But how did Paul pray that those three powerful points would come into our lives? He uses the phrase, I pray that God opens the eyes of your heart. And that is how you see into the spiritual realm. And that is how Jesus was seeing what other people couldn't see. He was listening to his heart telling him what was going on more than just his eyes in his head. Now, the eyes of our heart don't give you HD TV quality like the eyes in our head do. They are what you sense. They are what you feel. They are information that God gives you. But it's recognizing that one of the reasons Jesus died and went to heaven in his resurrection was so the Holy Spirit could come and be with us. And John 14 says, he will be with you and he will live in you. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And I want to encourage you to learn that through the eyes of your heart, he whispers to you information about what's going on around you. Not all the time, but some of the time. And we're going to look at Jesus and his disciples and see how they did that. So how do you see what Father is doing? You learn to listen to the eyes of your heart. Now, this requires a radical change of process in us. Next slide, please. The problem we have is our eyes are a great gift from God. They are a wonderful gift. Mark is not saying next time you go driving, please close your eyes and use the eyes of your heart or you'll just get me into trouble. They are very powerful. But the trouble we have is, and miracles is another good example, is your eyes can tell you what you can and can't do. They can define your world. They can control you. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 22-23, that if our eyes allow light in, our world is full of light. But if our eyes don't allow light in, if our eyes say to us, God cannot heal this, even the doctors can't heal this, we have great darkness within us. So the challenge you and I have is we have eyes which are a great gift, but they can tell you what you can and can't do and God moves beyond those. We sang again this morning, he is the God of the impossible. So now and again, what your eyes tell you can't happen, God can do. And when we're praying for healing, that is exactly what we're doing. We are saying to our eyes, there is more to life than what you can see and what you can tell us. Our eyes can define that. In Mark 8, 14 to 21... Jesus turns to his disciples because he is, he is trying to say to them, look, don't you get it? You're still looking at the world with just the eyes in your head. And he uses this lovely phrase, do you have eyes but cannot see? And do you have ears but cannot hear? Well, their physical eyes were seeing and their physical ears were hearing, but their heart wasn't hearing there's more going on. There are situations when God wants to break in and do something supernatural. And with the rich young ruler, it was just a whisper in his heart that the rich young ruler had a bigger problem than just obeying the commandments in his life. So I'm setting you the challenge. We have to learn to see the invisible. Okay, so this is the moment when the men in white coats come in and carry me away and you can go back to your normal lives again. <laughs> but 
Because there is a spiritual realm out there. It isn't spooky. It isn't frightening. There are angels involved in it. It isn't happening all the time. But now and again, there are moments, maybe tingly moments, may not be tingly moments, when God wants to do more in a situation and you're with somebody and you're saying, God can see more about them than I can. What are we doing? And you may be praying for them and start beginning to feel guidance in how to pray into their situation. So I want to teach you practically how to do this. Next slide, please. Okay. Need to get a good biblical basis. Okay. This is not wacko stuff. This is basic Christianity. Um, it is not spooky. It's very normal. It's just being like Jesus. And now and again, to do miracles and do the impossible, it's recognizing that he is going to take us to places where we can't go, but he can through us. Mark Isles is a very limited person. A bit noisy, but very limited. You can imagine how noisy my kids were when we went on holiday. Heavens. Julie is a very gracious lady. But God can do the impossible through me by his power. Not my power, but by his power. And it's recognizing that's what he wants to do. You are his hands and feet. He wants us to be Jesus' ambassadors to the world. 2 Corinthians 5.7 is short enough for me to remember it. And it was in the song we sang. Yes, I'm banging on about the song because our worship leaders have prepared us wonderfully for this talk this morning. We live by faith and not by sight. Okay? The Bible says to you, you must not live by what you can see because God is bigger than that. You live by faith. And that is why the definition of faith in Hebrews involves being certain of what you cannot see. Faith goes beyond sight on occasions. And that's what we can do. Yes, you can. If the Holy Spirit is within you, the power that Jesus had through the Spirit is available to you. But we have to step into that scary, uncertain place and recognize that that extra step is where God wants to take us. We live by faith and not by sight. Faith is being certain of what you can't see and sure of what you hope for. Scary place. It's called trusting God. When I prophesy, when I prophesy, it's like jumping off a cliff without a parachute. If God doesn't catch me, it's going to get messy. It needs trust. It needs trust. Is, am I just mad? Or is this God speaking through me? You know, God said he would give us gifts of the Spirit. So to be Jesus, we can be loving like Jesus, or we can be actually, on occasions, he wants us to be supernatural. John 20 one disciple made himself world famous by refusing to believe anything his eyes couldn't see. And he became dubbed Doubting Thomas. And he said the following. He said, unless I see the holes in Jesus' hands and the spear hole in his side, I will not believe he has risen from the dead. And remember, the other disciples are telling him that they've seen Jesus, okay? So he said, if my eyes can't see it, it's not real. And he became famous for that. And God didn't come. Jesus didn't come and punish him. He showed him grace and love. 
And he showed him the holes in his hand. And he showed him the spear in his side. And he said something wonderful about you and I. He said, blessed are you because you believe because you've seen. But blessed are those who believe and have never seen. And that's you and me. We believe. The, the Alpha testimony this morning, falling in love with God again, what a wonderful experience. Hey, it's, it's naughty having it twice. I'm not sure that should be allowed. That is amazing, wonderful, wonderful. Is believing in what you can't see. You see, it's, I'm not asking you to do anything you're not doing every day. You believe in a God you can't see. You believe in a God you can't touch. You believe in a God you sort of can hear, maybe not his audible voice. But you believe in what you can't see, and he is, he is a certainty in my life. I was saved in 1973. I read a card. Dear Lord Jesus, I give you my life. My mum laughed and said, don't worry. Her immutable words were, don't worry, Monday morning, this was Sunday, everything will go back to normal. We'll just hit the reset button. Two weeks later, she's going, you know, you have changed. You're not the same mark you were. And since then, although I've had doubts and I've had crises and I've had challenges, he has been the one rock in my life that I've stood on since 1973, the certainty I have, and I have never seen him with my eyes. Isn't it interesting? The person opposite to Doubting Thomas is a Roman. A Roman centurion comes to Jesus in Matthew 8, verses 5 to 15. Now, I've, I've, uh, I was into Roman history quite a lot, particularly Roman armies. I uh, fought with little soldiers when I was at university. Um, and I know what their uniforms are like. And a Roman centurion's dress is impressive. It is really brightly colored, and it's quite overwhelming if they're with you, even excluding the plumage on their helmet. They looked the biz. They looked the biz, okay? Jesus, I don't know what Jesus was dressed like, okay? But he's a carpenter on the road, not buying a lot of clothes. He's not going to look much. He may not be well shaved. He's not going to look the biz. I hope that's not ungracious. Just that's the reality. The centurion looks at him, and Jesus is shocked because he comes to Jesus and says, my servant who's really, really ill, on the point of death, I need you to heal him. And Jesus is sort of expecting that we'll have the usual conversation. We'll go to the centurion's house. Um, I'll lay hands on him, and he will get well. And I don't mean to ridicule that. That's just the normal run-of-the-mill. But this centurion looked at Jesus with the eyes of his heart, not the eyes in his head. And what he saw was an authority that was so powerful, he said to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. I say to men, go, and they go. And you have that authority. You just have to say, here, be healed, and my servant at home will be healed. And Jesus is like, whoa. I have never met faith like that in Israel. Because the centurion was doing what his disciples didn't get. Love them. I love the disciples. I regularly get it wrong and mess up. So I feel really reassured by them that they consistently miss the dish. They consistently miss it. But the centurion gets it. And Jesus is like, whoa. This guy can see with his heart the authority I have. And so he just says, be healed. 
And everybody's sort of like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? This quote, I will repeat, it's one of my favorites, it's mine. Faith is making decisions based on what you see in heaven, not what you see in earth. It is a game changer. Let me help you a bit more. Next slide, please. I want to look at a situation because I'm just not that good. I can't, I can't be with a rich young ruler and go, yeah, got an idol of money in his life, need to repent and break it out. It comes to me gradually sometimes, particularly in my life. And I think if we look at the story of David and Goliath, we can watch somebody who didn't get it, but gradually got it. He didn't get it, but he gradually got it. So I'm sometimes in a situation and I'm knowing, yeah, this is one of those where God wants to do more, but I'm not sure what it is. So I have to sort of hang around here and find out what it is. And David's a great story. He goes to the battle. This is the story of David and Goliath. So Goliath's out there threatening the armies of Israel and Saul. They're all terrified of him. Um, And he's trying to use the champion technique where one person fights, not the whole army, and whoever wins, they win the battle rather than just a lot of people dying. David's delivering sandwiches, and he's chatting, and he's doing what young brothers do, annoying his older brothers. So they're not nice to him, okay? So he goes away, and he wants to find out what's going on. So he's chatting about the subject of Goliath with everybody else. And while it's happening, something that wasn't in David's head pops out of his heart. David sees something that nobody else has seen that he hasn't seen, but his heart recognizes. And he comes out with this phrase, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He doesn't see the reality of the physical army and how tall Goliath is. I mean, um, Julie's made me teach in the children's work enough because it's tougher there than with the adults, and that's how I learned my teaching. So I've cut out Goliath, nine foot on the wall, and I know how big he is. He's a big monster, quite scary. If you think his weapons were so heavy, he had to have an armor bearer to carry them. Um, and David, suddenly, the eyes of his heart see two things that nobody else has got. First of all, we have one army that's in covenant and loved by God, and we have another army that's not in covenant and not loved by God. So these are people who are in trouble because they are not in covenant with God. Secondly, David says they're not fighting Saul's army. They're defying God. You know, um, so taking on Saul might be a strategic move. Taking on God is just basically stupid. Just not a good thing to be doing, you know. It's what we call a lose-lose scenario. Okay. So David suddenly goes, there's something going on here that nobody else has seen. We are actually God's people. And Goliath isn't fighting me or the army. Now, he doesn't do anything about that. It's not like this revelation, he writes a sermon and goes around teaching. He carries on as normal. It's only when Saul hears what David has said and goes, whoa, there's something in that. He calls David to his tent. So David's sort of got something and not got something. He arrives He arrives in Saul's tent, and having got there on his journey, his heart sees more this time. And he suddenly goes, I get it now. All this fighting lions and bears to protect my sheep wasn't protecting my sheep. It was actually preparing me 
for today. I'm the meant to be the person who's fighting Goliath. Okay? Now, interestingly, his language isn't like tomorrow the world. His language is God will save me. God will save me from Goliath. It's not your overconfident one. But do you see what? So he's got this, hang on a sec, this guy's taking on God. Whoa, I'm the person who's meant to do this type of stuff. And, you know, there's a whole sermon in the fact that he doesn't put on Saul's armor. Still hasn't got the whole thing yet, but you can see he's waking up to there's something more going on here. And as is often the case, it's when you get in the valley you really pick up the pace. But I'd like to, we all know the story of David and Goliath, and I've taught it a lot in the kids. I wonder if you really know the end of the story. We'll find out when we get there. Because I've found a lot of people don't know the end of this story, which is quite interesting. He gets down, he gets down in the valley, and in front of Goliath, facing the situation, that's when God gives you real clarity. And he says the following, He says, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, whom you've defied. I'm not actually, I know I'm the person to fight you, but you're not fighting me, you're fighting God. And he's beginning to recognize what's going on here and reason. And he then says, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Okay? Which is what happens. But at that very moment, he then prophesies what I believe is the end of the story. Because the end of the story is not David killing Goliath. Pause for effect. Any effect out there? <laughs> no, you know the answer, don't you? Yeah, that's just annoying, you knowing the answer. He starts to prophesy. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the whole Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. The whole point of this prophesied by David was that the Philistines and the Israelites, the whole world, would know there's a God in Israel. Now, he didn't get that. He didn't see it with the eyes of his heart on day one. He went on a journey. And that's more like my experience. It just grows on me and I get a better understanding. And then when I get there, there's often even more to the story than I really believe. How often in the Bible did one person get saved and then they went and saved their whole family or their whole village? And what started off as a one-on-one encounter, you have no idea if you give one chocolate egg to one person, what dominoes that might set off in Dungannon. Who knows? One day, one day, somebody shared the gospel with Billy Graham and had no idea where that would go in the days to come. So we're looking for God's possible, impossible. We need to see the invisible to do the impossible. Last slide, please. 12-12. It's going to be tight. Is that okay? Cool. I want to go through one more story. Um, and so I'm going to pick on the disciples again. I like picking on the disciples. That's naughty picking on the disciples, isn't it? You know, what a pair of plonkers. Uh, but I'm so like them, it's okay. Well, you see, if, if Jesus loved them, he loved me. You know, just get it wrong. Completely crash and burn. That's okay. That's okay. Um, 
most important thing today was the first line you sang. What was the first line you sang? Come now, come as you are. Come as you are. That's the gospel. Whatever you've done, wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, he accepts you. He loves you. My words are minor compared to that truth. I meet too many Christians, I'm off the page, sorry. I meet too many Christians who don't feel good enough. That's the one thing he died for. It's the one thing he died for. So what does the enemy try and do? Tell you you're not good enough. In Jesus you are. You are loved. You are accepted. You belong. The rest is icing on the cake. Prophecy is irrelevant to that. It is such a deep truth. It has made me a whole person that regardless of all the things I've done and all my struggles, he hugs me with love. It's, it's the truth. The very first thing we sang today was the biggest truth you'll hear today. And if you don't know Jesus' love, then I can assure you his cuddles are worth having. Because they just squeeze all the fear, the shame, and the nightmares out of you and bring you to a place where you can be at rest. It is just, Jesus said, it's okay. And if Jesus says it's okay, it's okay. Whoa, big one. So we'll go back to picking on the disciples again because I like picking on me. We have Jesus in the left corner who will only see with the eyes of his heart. And we have the disciples in the right corner who will only see with the eyes in their head. And we have a conversation where we have people who are not talking to each other. Matthew 14, 13 to 21 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them and healed on them. Now, for once, the disciples with the eyes in their head, in the right corner, the disciples with the eyes in their head, is quite good. I'm with them. Look, we've had a cracking meeting. We've had a most amazing meeting, healings, miracles. We're all tired. Why don't you send them home? They can get fed and have some rest, and let's get back at it tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's working, isn't it? That's, that sounds reasonable. But that's what the eyes in their head are saying, and that may have been normal. But unfortunately, Jesus over here is going, God is doing more. So he says, with the eyes in his head, which means they won't understand it, you feed them. Okay? Now, I get very irreverent now, so don't be offended, Okay? But this is the moment when you cannot say to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be stupid. You just can't. So you know it means something, but you don't know it. So you come up with the best thing you can, your version of don't be stupid. We have five fish and two loaves. Five fish, two loaves. Five thousand people. Big clue. You know, so there's very, lots of hand actions going on. Because they're seeing with the eyes in their head. They're not letting their heart whisper to them that something more is happening. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish they're asked. Seeing with his, the eyes of his heart, he said, bring them here to me. That's all they had. You can't pretend there isn't more, can you? Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish 
And looking up to heaven, he gave and broke loaves. Then he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave them out. He was very naughty. Your Lord Jesus Christ was very naughty because he got the disciples to hand out the food. Yes, I did say that. Why? Because as you're handing out the food, we move into a cartoon situation, a comedy cartoon situation, because there's not enough food in your bowl. Okay? And after a while, you realize it's not going down. It's worse than that. There's more in there. Okay? Now, I'm a mathematician, remember? I can't do English, but I can do maths. And what was left at the end when they fed everybody? Twelve basketfuls. So there was more left at the end than when they started with. So we got baskets filling up, not going down. So after a while, they are, this can't be right. This is, this is wrong. The eyes in their head are freaking out. So you're watching the bowl, not where you're going. So I know the disciples were falling over regularly because they are, what is happening? There's more in the bowl than when I last looked in it because I end up with 12. And it is interesting that if Jesus had had the internet Back in those days, the headlines would have been, Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus women and children. Big headline. He never mentions numbers to the disciples. On two occasions, what he says to them is, how much did you have left over? That's what he says to them. Do you have eyes but cannot see and ears that cannot hear? And I'm saying we can do this. Not all the time. But there are occasions when God just wants to break in and do something special. That when you say to somebody, can I pray for you? And I, I know people are not sure about God in many ways. Some people challenge the Bible. People still seem to be open to prayer. When I offer people to pray for them, they're very willing to. Even if they don't believe in God, don't get that, don't know why, but let's get to it. And God starts whispering to me about what I should pray for. So my final line is something that those who are young amongst you will have no idea what it is. And those who are old like me will know what it is. And there was something a long time ago, as I finish, that was bigger than the mobile phone. And it was called WYSIWYG. Yeah, it's pretty tacky and trendy, isn't it? WYSIWYG. It was called WYSIWYG. In the day of the dinosaur, when I was at work, we had one computer, and it, you couldn't call it a computer, on which you put the words of your letter and your documents. And then you took it to another computer and you put the fonts, the margins, and the paragraphs, and all the layout and the headings on in a separate program. And it was a nightmare. This meant that because managers like me left everything to the last minute, there was a rule in the office that you couldn't take your letter or contract down to the secretaries less than half an hour to go to the end of the day, because it was physically impossible and unfair on them. It wasn't your fault, and it was their fault, so we made a rule where you couldn't do it. Somebody decided that it would be wonderful if these two computer screens could be made into one. And if you could, if you could take the words and the formatting into one, okay, it meant in an ideal world that what you saw on the screen is what would come out in the printer. Because the game in my, life, my day was what came out in the printer was pretty interesting compared to what you started with. But you all take that for granted. And it was called the new phenomenon, what you see is what you get on the printer. And it was called WYSIWYG. And it changed the world. It was a nightmare for me. The half an hour rule went. And I'd get to the secretarial pool with my letter, and they could go, that's OK. You can do it yourself. 
because what you saw on the screen was what came out on the printer. I typed my own letter. They didn't need to do it. They could be used for specialized contracts and accounts and difficult stuff, which formatting. It was called what you see is what you get. And that's what I leave you with. That's the biblical principle for me. What you see is what you're going to get. If you only see with the eyes in your head, then you will live in a physical, limited world. May seem the same world, may keep you the same as your neighbors, may not feel so weird. But if you allow God to teach you to see with the eyes of your heart, and we need to learn and whisper to the whispers in us and the thoughts he puts in our mind in typical situations, he will take you further into his spiritual realm, which is where Jesus was different to everybody else. He learned to see with the eyes of your heart. If you can see with the eyes of your heart, then that's the world God will take you into. And instead of just praying for somebody on occasions, God will tell you what to pray for. And when you know somebody needs, is, is in hurt and pain, he will guide you about how to set them free. And when you see somebody with sickness, the eyes of your heart will say, God wants to heal them and give you the faith to step into that. And now and again, and I know it's very naughty, God may give you a message which we call prophecy, a specific message for that person. And you will share that. I feel God wants to say to you, in your situation these particular words, and it's more than God loves you, although that is a great message. So my conclusion with you is, and my challenge to you is, as, as is my challenge in my own life, Jesus said he only did what he saw the Father doing. And we have the Holy Spirit living within us who will help us, and you know, if, if this is your first step into the journey, then just take your first step. We've got to learn together. But he will teach you how to see with the eyes of your heart. And sometimes you'll be standing in a bus queue, and it's just a bus queue. And sometimes you'll be standing in the bus queue, and God will start talking to you about the person in front of you, about what he wants to do in their life. And, and what happens is you end up being disobedient like me. Because I'm standing in the bus queue, and God goes, just lost his job. You need to encourage him. I'm not doing anything. This is England. You talk in a bus queue, and they think you're mad. You know, what do you want? No, no, go away, no. He has lost his job. How would you feel if you've lost your job? You want somebody to encourage you. And in the end, you say something. You're thinking, he thinks I'm mad, he thinks I'm mad. And he goes, and they, they're, they're sort of, how did you know this? You know, sometimes I get it wrong. But a lot of the time, Father's right, and it, it opens doors. Now, I'm not saying they get saved there and then, but like David's story... They know there is a God in Dungannon. Because it's for the Christians and the non-Christians. It wasn't, it wasn't so the Philistines knew there was a God. It was so the whole world knew the God. So I leave you with WYSIWYG. Okay? I know you regret coming and listening to this crazy Englishman. Sorry about that. But there is part of your life that Jesus died for that I want you to step out in. He doesn't require you to be perfect. When you, when you give your chocolate egg out... He's not, he's not judging you on what they do afterwards. He's just asking you to obey and share his love with people and see where it leads. And if they say, thank you very much, you say, have a nice day. If they say, why are you giving me a chocolate egg? You are respectful and honest with them. 
to give an answer. Because Easter is special to us. Because Jesus died and rose again and offers his love to you. So let, let me pray for you. Because I want to get you into trouble.